Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Few people have thought about and researched the future of work more than Dr. Anna Tavis. She is a clinical professor and academic director of the Human Capital Management Department at NYU's School of Professional Studies. She's a senior fellow with the conference board and the academic in residence with Executive Networks. Anna has been named to Thinkers 50 radar list for 2020. Her latest book, Humans at Work, The Art and Practice of Creating a Remote Workplace, was published in spring of 2022. She has been featured in outlets such as the Washington Post, Bloomberg, the Human Resources Executive Trading Magazine, her Harvard Business Review article with Peter Capelli, HR Goes Viral, and the article The Performance Management Revolution were reprinted in HBR's Must Reads. She has navigated a diverse and global career in academia, business, and consulting. She was the head of Motorola's EMEA OD function based in London, Nokia's global head of talent management based in Helsinki, chief learning officer with United Technologies Corporation based in Hartford, Connecticut, and global head of talent and organizational development with AIG Investments based in New York City. I've gotten to know Anna over the years and even have had a chance to lecture in one of her NYU programs. Her work on the topics of future of work, people analytics and technology, employee experience and intelligent automation in the workplace are truly cutting edge. In this podcast, she shares three trends that are most impacting the future of work now, how AI will shape what work humans do in the future why diversity and inclusion especially matter, and what it will take for an organization or a leader of an organization to win the war for talent going forward. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Anna Tavis. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. It's great to have you here. I'm absolutely Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I don't know many people who have thought as much about the history and future of work as you. And so this is a great honor for us. One question I'd like to start off with, and I ask this of all of our guests, just to get us to know you a little bit personally, if you could complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. If you really know me, you know that I am an avid yoga practitioner. I travel to India every year. I've been seriously studying Sanskrit, Buddhism, and Indian culture and philosophy. And as is always the case with me, I go to the Mecca. I go to where it all started. So you could chase me down all the way to southern India every winter until the pandemic hit. So that was a real slowdown for me. But the benefits of that practice really helped me stay focused and centered throughout the two years plus of lockdown. Wow, I didn't know that at all, but I can absolutely see that. And our listeners can't see the video here, but I do see images on your wall of it looks like a Buddha sitting cross-legged and another Buddha on a cow. And yes, fascinating. So your specialty and your interest area is around work, which is part of strategy. So I'd like to ask you, and I ask this of everyone, I always get a different answer. What is your definition of strategy? You know, it might be very idiosyncratic to me, but a strategy for me, is more of a proof of strategy through an ability of any plan or vision or forecast 
to really play itself out in human communities because we often have these amazing plans or very finely aligned and matched new presentations, but the human nature is such, especially as it plays itself out in groups, teams, communities, that all of those strategies get changed, adjusted, and oftentimes transformed and pivoted away from. So for me, it is a continuum from having a great idea and then proving it out and seeing how the humans actually behave in the long run. I love that. I love that. Yeah, strategy ultimately is fulfilled by and impacts humans, which brings me to my first question, I think, which is what is work? I mean, you talk about this distinction between work and a job. I think if we're going to talk about work and future of work. We should know what the definition of work is. To me, work is intrinsically human, purposeful activity that really becomes all-encompassing if you find that particular purpose and meaning. Work is a lot more than just a transactional activity or a particular project or a job you do. Work is more like a calling to me. And as you know, there's so much research these days on the difference between purposeful work and sort of the routine work. And so when I talk about work, I mean work is a calling of the highest actualization of what it means to be human. It means not just to exist, but also to change the environment around you, which is done through work. Mm-hmm. I realized many years ago, my mission in life is people loving what they do. And I think when work can be meaning, that's a very fulfilling life. How is work changing? You talk about the technologies and other trends that are shaping work. You talk about data analytics and artificial intelligence, the rise of gig work. What are the three or so trends that are most shaping the nature of work? It's such a great question. First, I think there is a democratization of what I call work, and that is work that has purpose and meaning. When I looked at it historically and done quite a bit of research on how work evolved, it started, if you look at the Greeks and the Romans, in the writings of the Stoics, for example, who are very popular with the technologists these days. That type of work was only available to a very small fraction of society. People who learn it, who had the means the elite of the elite. Everyone else was toiling the fields and really doing a lot of physical work. But as we progressed more toward the knowledge work, what we call today, and with the impact of technology and automation, I think this type of meaningful, purposeful, self-fulfilling work is going to be available to larger and larger percentage of world's population. Because this to the mundane, the transactional, the kind of the survival of the fittest type of work is going to be taken over by technology. And we know that. And even some most routine intellectual work is already being automated. So this was the whole thrust of the book to really explore what's left to us as humans. And that will be that high definition of work with a big W there, where people are going to be seeking more and more those types of occupations and those types of work where they can see the purpose, where they can see themselves 
self-actualize and making a difference. So that's a broader definitional work. And everything flows from there. You asked for three. I would say the second one would be technology. Human work has become really intertwined with technology, and it's going to become a lot more inseparable as the robots are coming in and the artificial intelligence is moving to high levels of AI with even most sophisticated intellectual tasks done better by the machines, those that are repeatable. So what's left to the humans? So I think work is going to be defined through creativity, innovation, breakthroughs, discovery, and those types of activities that humans are going to be cultivating for themselves and then outsourcing everything to technology. And the third one probably is that in that sense, work is going to primarily disappear in the traditional sense of, again, muscle. And we see it, for example, in the evolution of cooking. Cooking used to take, you know, if we go back to the cave lives and agricultural societies where people were cooking all day just to provide for themselves at the end of the day with technologies available to them. Now in the urban environments, cooking is a hobby. People are doing cooking because it's creative, because the day-to-day cooking basically doesn't have to exist unless you choose to do it. So I think that we're going to see that kind of the shrinkage, significant shrinkage of the routine and the enhancement of the creative, innovative and discovery based type of activity as work. Oh my gosh, this is fascinating. I can't visualize this future yet. I don't know if you've been sitting out there thinking about this. Could you maybe bring that to life for us a little bit? What would that look like? You know where I think you might have come across this is in the growing discussions about universal income, that for people who will not be able to engage in that higher level of productivity, higher level of output and creativity, society will have to agree on what those means of support for those pockets of population is going to be. And even though in the beginning in the economics, it was considered to be utopian, I think now we can see that that discussion is picking up momentum. We've seen it showing up on the political debates, and there are certain economies now, like in Switzerland, have the actual experimentation with those types of economic systems. And everything I've read about this universal income is that people who are getting subsidized that way, they don't stop working. They actually engage in a variety of very creative activities, including entrepreneurship, including other types of social meaningful work. And that is really remarkable to see. People who do not have that financial support, that's where we see a lot more social issues associated with unemployment, for example. What I'm kind of hearing you say is if work gets detached from a purpose of producing something as valuable to someone else, because machines can do a lot of that. 
there still has to be activity. People still have to eat. So then the person who pays people, I guess, it's no longer an employer. It becomes society or something like that. Right. And it's almost like what I was thinking about even in writing this book is that we kind of short-circuiting to the industrial revolution and all of our discussions of comparative organizational systems, comparative industrial systems, and even the evolution of technology, we usually take it only as far back as the early 20th century with the Model T and Ford and factories, et cetera, et cetera. But if you take it a lot further back into history, there's some amazingly compelling comparisons that arise. And I, for example, spent quite a bit of time researching artisan communities, looking at how they organize themselves, because at the end of the day, the artisans were the first work from home people. <laughs> if you think about it that way, in fact, the office or the factory or going to work was introduced much later in the industrialization process. So I personally think that we're moving back more to the artisan models in the next iteration of technology, evolution, services, et cetera, in the human society than comparing ourselves to the very basic early stages of industrialization. I think that that's where we fall short in our thinking about human history, especially business history, as just going back to that particular starting point. It actually started much, much earlier than that. And one of the triggers for me was when I was looking at the history and even technology, I was fascinated by the fact that, for example, a lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, innovators absolutely worship Stoics. They pick up that philosophy. I think in San Francisco, there's even a mural of some citations from Mark and Seneca and others. And if you think of that revival of interest in the Romans and the Greeks, what was that that drew these technologies to the philosophy of that far back, right? And I think it is the overall search exactly for the questions that you're asking me of the meaning of work, because even though it was limited to that still slave society, if you think about that, but those people at the very top, the Roman emperors, who a lot of them were these Stoic philosophers and embraced those philosophies, they were actually living their lives. They were not self-made, they inherited where they were, but their philosophy is what these new entrepreneurs are really looking at. It's fascinating to have. Yeah, I've heard Tim Ferriss talk a lot about he's written books or supported books on it, but I hadn't thought about the macro reason for that. I've got so many questions for you. I know we don't have as much time as this interview would deserve, but you talk about employees being the new customers. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. I mean, it's not really something I discovered, but I think there's this broader conversation that's happening, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic when Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, in his annual letter to the CEOs that he writes every year in 2022, one of the trends that he pointed out was that changing contract between the employees and employees. And he's sort of warning and admonition to those who are not paying attention to that changing power structure in companies to really start realigning themselves toward that new dynamic. 
it's very consistent to what we've discussed before. As the work is becoming more and more personalized in a routine work outsourced and executed by the machines, then the value of individuals working for companies is higher and higher because what company needs to tap into is that creativity, that sense of discovery, which requires not only a set of skills, but also personalities and characteristics that in the more traditional workplace setting, in the kind of industrial model, were not really relevant as much for as long as you can define the process, train people on certain skills, and then set them to work, that kind of routine is what work was all about, the execution and head down type of work. As work is becoming more heads up, and it's exactly the work that outthinkers are thinking about a lot, the name of your organization is outthinkers, means thinking out of the box. So that's not something you could define. And so competing for that particular personality type and talent is what differentiates companies. And it takes a lot more than just training them on skills. And this is also one of my arguments against just purely basic skills-oriented approach to workforce, where we only think about, let's just upskill, reskill, etc. people, and everything is going to work. And what we have finding. In fact, I looked into, for example, New York City as an example of how much investment is being made into reskilling people with an idea that once they can code, they can get jobs and everything goes from there. And unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. It takes a lot more for people to succeed, to stick with their jobs, to succeed socially than just knowing how to code. And I think that that is where we're going to see a significant differentiation between those companies, those organizations that invest in not only finding that talent, but also retaining talent and making sure they have the environment to excel, as opposed to those who continue to treat people on that kind of machine model and treat them in a very transactional way. I think that's where we're going to see the talent flow through different organizations, even in the same companies, the same type of industry, we are going to see talent flows. And you know it, you look at CVs, you look at resumes of people and you encounter the same type of mobility. It's not just an indication of the exclusivity of that club, but also it's an indication that those types of skills are at a premium in the current organizations. I have so many questions, but I know we're reaching the top of our time here. But I'd just like to just ask you one more question. We'll ask you two more questions. The last one will be, how can people connect with you and follow you? But before that, let's just flip it a bit. If someone is a leader in an organization or leading strategy or leading human capital strategy in an organization, what are some things that they need to be thinking about in order to be successful in the long term? I think that being a people leader, a good people leader requires a lot of humility and self-awareness. If I could just give you an illustration of somebody who I really admire, and you won't be surprised, I think it's Satya Nadella. Mm-hmm. CEO of Microsoft. Yes, the leader of Microsoft in thinking about how he was able to re-found the company is really incredible. I mean, we have very few leaders who can come in after, you know, maybe Tim Cook is another one, but he's a lot less visible in terms of what he does, right? I think 
Dr. Nadal is transparent around what he does with his organization, etc. But thinking about refounding a business after a legendary founder, and when the business started to go down, right, and they lost step with what the current environment needed, and then Satya Nadella came in and reinvented basically the whole thing. That's a really big scale illustration of what I'm talking about, this creative. Even in a job of a CEO, you could be pretty static and pretty traditional formulaic on how you approach it. But he wasn't. And a lot of it, just between us, to make it the full circle to where I started, because of my study of Indian culture and <laughs> Indian philosophy, etc., I actually see a lot of connections there because he's Indian and because of his story, personal story, that is very humble. His whole experience of having a handicapped child whom he had to care for for the majority of his life until recently and how he taught the life lessons he needed to drive a successful business. Another factoid that fascinates me and also speaks about his humility of the CEOs at that level of success and seniority, he's the lowest paid. We do not hear about his billions. Sadie Nadella's compensation never comes up in conversations. And that is, I think, for leadership, for leaders, Getting out of talking about strategy every day and looking deeper into philosophy and, yes, go beyond industrial revolution and the role models that everyone was raised on. Seeking that ultimate truth and self-fulfillment, I think that's what Nadella really represents to me. And he's unique in this whole gallery of successful tech CEOs today. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And that's a beautiful way to wrap it up and bring it back to the purpose of work. So again, I have so much more we can explore, but I know our time with you is limited and we also try to keep the podcast more bite-sized. So given that, how can people learn from you and follow you? Certainly, we highly recommend that people buy and read Humans at Work. How else can people follow you and stay connected to you? You know, the social network that I continue to go to every day is LinkedIn, because I think it's pretty much the only one that kind of maintained a significant level of integrity and focus. And that's where I post a lot of what I do, as well as announcements about the programs, etc. I am on Twitter, but I mostly reading and posting. All right. So we'll find you on LinkedIn. Anna, thank you so much for the work you do and for helping us understand and explore and create the future of work and for spending some time to share your work with us here today. Thank you so much. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.